From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado has nearly a thousand native bee species. Some are specialists when it comes to pollinating. Think squash bees, for instance. Many of these species are at risk because of habitat loss, climate change. Today, scientists enlist a network of backyard amateurs to assess the problem and help solve it. What can you do? Plus, we take you inside a honeybee startup that's generating some buzz. And later in the show, the lost history of Irish miners lured to Leadville with silvery promises, only to find them broken. The hungry, the desperate, the poor. To me, it has so many larger connections to other communities and other issues and history. And that offers us our humanity back, maybe. Colorado Public Radio remains committed to taking you on daily explorations into the world of music and into the news of the day bringing you more backstories and perspectives with an expanded schedule. Your support ensures a strong foundation for the compelling coverage and storytelling that you will continue to rely on. A popular way to support? Start an evergreen membership and commit to giving a little each month. Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. Give because the news and music matter at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're going to start with a question from a listener, a question central to our food supply. Hi, my name is Juan Gallegos. I currently reside in Arvada, Colorado, and I'm a fifth-generation Coloradan. I'm talking with folks along the Front Range, and none of us have really seen any pollinators. I'm kind of curious what's going on. He isn't seeing pollinators. Gallegos reached out through Colorado Wonders, where you can ask us questions about the state, and we try to answer them. We were definitely intrigued by this question, given how much is riding on the backs of bees and butterflies. More than a third of the world's food crops depend on critters that pollinate. So today is uh, Monday, June 14th, and I saw my first butterfly this morning. Uh, In terms of bees... Like, honestly, I've only seen two this entire year. I'm not really seeing bees frequent any of our mint, any of our salvias. Yeah, it's still kind of an atypical year from what I can tell. We know this. In Colorado, many pollinators are struggling. And this is something Lisa Mason keeps tabs on. She helps run the Native Bee Watch Community Science Program through CSU Extension. And she's going to help us answer Gallegos's question There is a lot that she is still trying to learn as well. Here's the good news. There's stuff you can do to support pollinators. And Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Juan mentioned bees and butterflies, but there are many other pollinators. Like what? Flies, bats, uh, hummingbirds, specifically in Colorado. Um, And then bees are often the most efficient pollinators because they have specialized hairs on their body that collect and transfer the pollen. Oh, I see. The pollen sticks to hairy bees. Yes. Okay. Flies. That surprises me. Yeah, now we have a a wide range of flies in Colorado. Um, So most people are probably familiar with the flies you find in your house. Uh, But we have a lot of flower visiting flies called, uh, the most common ones you're going to see are surfid flies and bee flies. Do you kill flies? I usually put them up. Well, they're in my house, maybe, but definitely not flower visiting flies and, and beneficial flies. Okay. 
Uh, this is fascinating to me that Colorado has nearly a thousand species of native bees. Now, uh, Gallegos wasn't sure what sorts of bees he was feeling nostalgic for. Uh, your community science program indeed focuses on these native bees, which are distinct from honeybees. So why don't we uh, just do a little brass tacks here? Help us understand the difference between honeybees and all these many kinds of native bees. Yeah, well, let's start with honeybees. Um, honeybees are uh, technically a non-native managed species. Like so, livestock. Correct. Yeah, okay. exactly. And so we we breed honeybees and beekeepers can purchase them and, and raise them in man-made hives. Uh, and so, so we manage them. Now, honeybees have a, a wide variety of challenges, too, uh, that, that are very concerning. Uh, for instance, like varroa mites is probably the, one of the top issues with, with beekeepers. Mites? That ride on honeybees. Correct. Uh-huh. They are a parasite of, of bees and really can ultimately cause the death of the colony. So there's a honeybees have a wide variety of issues, but they're not really at risk of going extinct. Where all of our native bee species, you know, we, we need to understand their populations and how we can better support them because they are at risk of declining and even some species potentially uh, going extinct someday. Extinction is a possibility for some of these native bees. 900 or so different species in Colorado alone. And I understand that these uh, native bees get pretty specialized. Some of them do. Some of them have only one or two specific uh, types of plants that they will visit. And others are are generalists, so they'll visit a wide variety of flowers. Uh, But we do, uh, squash bees are a great example of a specialist bee. Uh, They're out in the early mornings pollinating all your pumpkin, zucchini, and squash plants. And they're very efficient at it, too. Other bees can visit squash flowers, but, you know, the squash bees have it done by the time the honeybees wake up in the mornings. And it it is this special specialization that makes any individual species of native bee important. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I suppose the generalists as well. Uh, you may roll your eyes at the stupidity of this question, but do native bees at all make honey? No, no. they okay. do not. Honey, honey bees. bees make honey. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting basic here. Uh, I know that habitat loss is a big concern for native bees. What are they losing habitat to? Humans um, and human development, we're just like with, with other wildlife species, they're, they're losing their habitat spaces. And most people know that honeybees live in man-made hives, while native bees live underground and they live in cavities like in a dead log. So providing under or bare ground spaces, uh, that, that's what they, our native bees need to, to live. What would that look like in a garden, for instance? So you can be very artistic with how you design your garden, um, but leaving some areas with, without mulch. Mulch is wonderful for the landscape, but if you leave some areas without mulch that uh, native bees and potentially other beneficial insects can, can utilize, can be helpful. Okay, mulch acts as something of a barrier that they don't burrow into or anything like that. If it's too thick, yes. Okay. I feel guilty because we just laid down a whole bunch of mulch at my building. Um, and so would you encourage... Uh, some gardeners to just leave things a little wilder looking? Is that what I hear you saying? Absolutely. And planting flowers is one of the best things people can do to to help and support really all bees. So our native bees and our honeybees. Xeriscape, though. Can that, the idea of planting a garden that doesn't require a lot of water, can that also support 
these native bee species. Absolutely. And a lot of xeriscape gardens have native Colorado plants in, in those gardens. And those go a long way for supporting our native bees. That's what they've always relied on. And you save on your water bill. And you save on your water bill. Juan Gallegos, I promise we're going to get to your question, but there's just a lot to understand, I think, in order to frame it properly. I just want to note it is hot as blazes. And we are seeing wildfires in Colorado, climate change certainly on many minds right now. How does climate change fit in to what is threatening pollinators and specifically native bees? So climate change is a very complex issue. And we have so many different species. Uh, Each species may react to the effects of climate change differently. So for instance, our generalist bees that visit a wide variety of flowers, they might have more tolerance for for the changes, uh, climate change. They've got options. They've got options, yes. Uh, Where specialist bees, you know, if climate change is impacting the, the flowers that they visit, they might struggle more. And so that looks differently a few different ways. Um, the range of bees might expand or decrease depending on the, you know, the temperatures. Um, that includes elevation too. So, so geographic uh, ranges, but also elevations. Some of our bees might uh, go up to a higher elevation if we have warmer temperatures. Um, phenology... Oh, well, I was just going to say that if they have to go to higher elevations, they might be encountering different flora at that point. Absolutely. And so that's why the generalists are perhaps more resilient. Absolutely. Okay. And then yeah. what were you going to say? Uh, there, there's something called phenology mi- mismatch, too. And that's when, uh, with climate change, flowers could be blooming earlier in the season than normal. And bees are very attuned. You know, our, our native bees are very attuned to when flowers, they'll emerge to and time it with the, the flowers they will visit. So, so there's a synchronicity, obviously, between the pollinators and what is being pollinated. And that can get out of sync because of climate change. Yes. Yes. And I also have to think that these flowers are a source of food as well for the bees. It's not just a question of what the bees are doing for the flower, right? Absolutely. So bees will visit flowers for the pollen and nectar sources. And pollen is protein and nectar is, is carbohydrates. Okay. So this is their food supply. And are these the forces that means some of the native bee species are at risk of disappearing entirely? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's get to Juan Gallegos' question. Again, he wasn't sure which bees he was missing out on. What might you say locally, kind of hyper-locally, is affecting the bees he's seeing or not in Arvada? Any, you know, annual or seasonal trends going on right now? So there's a lot of different variables that play into to the, to the bees that we're seeing. Uh, we had a very wet spring, this, yep. th- especially along the Front Range uh, in Colorado. Somehow that feels like a distant memory. But yes, I remember, th- <laughs> I remember when it was cool and wet. Yes, yeah. And so a wet spring will often delay, uh, in, and not just pollinators, really, really all insects or a lot of different groups of insects. So that could be one, one factor. Uh, we had a hot summer last year, and Colorado always had has extreme temperature fluctuations. So especially in the fall and the spring, it can go from a high temperature to a very cold temperature, you know, within even a 24-hour period. So those fluctuations in in our weather can uh, dramatically impact insect and pollinator populations from year to year. Okay, so there are some variables specific to this year. Anything else that you'd mention as a potential reason he's not seeing a ton of bees? Well, and uh, with honeybees, uh, it, it 
that may depend on some of the colony losses from last year. So colony losses vary. They could vary from like 30 to, to 60 percent um, and sometimes even higher. So that that's specific to honeybees and native bees, uh, you know, might be affected by the weather. Yeah. And some of the broader trends we're talking about as well, climate change and habitat loss. All right, Juan Gallegos, it is a bit of a complicated answer, but these are some of the factors that may be contributing to your experience in your garden there in Arvada. We're going to talk now about how citizen scientists can contribute to getting a clearer picture of the plight of native bees. I I just have to think if you are enlisting citizen scientists to start identifying hundreds of different kinds of species, where do you begin on differentiating them? How can you differentiate one bee from the next? Well, getting to a species level of identification really requires a microscope and a high level of taxonomic expertise. So what we've done is we've grouped bees into eight different categories, and each category shares common characteristics that you can observe with your eye while they're visiting flowers. What's an example or two? So we have uh, a hairy belly bees is one of our categories, and that is a group of bees. Uh, it's the Megachylidae family, which is our, our cavity nesting bees, and they have special pollen collecting hairs on the underside of their abdomens. So when you see them visiting a flower, uh, for instance, instance, a, a leaf cutter bee is a great example, uh, you'll see the, the bright yellow pollen sticking to, to the underside of her abdomen. Okay. So if you can't identify one specific species, you can sort of identify a, a larger group of them. What's one more example of a so, grouping? Bumblebees are, are a common, uh, people are very familiar with bumblebees. So, so they tend to be larger and they have hairs covering their entire body. So they, they almost appear fuzzy and, and maybe even cute. Does the term bumble just refer to kind of their movement? They're they're a bit bumbling. I don't even know. Yeah, yeah. And um, so bumblebees are, uh, it's, a, it's a genus of bees. It's bombus. Uh, and they... You know, I honestly don't know how they got the name bumblebees, okay. but it's it's that group of uh, bees that hairs are all over their body. They, Perhaps uh, because they're bomb-like. I don't know. Okay, we're speculating on air. Uh, are there concerns among the citizen scientists that you enlist around getting stung? That's an excellent question. So so we definitely provide that education. And, and one thing to know about stings, insect stings, over 90% of all insect, sting, insect stings are actually the western yellow jackets. Um, they're the insects that are flying around your picnics and your barbecues. They're scavengers and are attracted to human food sources. So really, um, you know, people get stung by a honeybee if they are if they're a beekeeper or maybe they accidentally step on one. But Honeybees don't want to sting. They actually lose their life after they sting you. These are getting a bad rap, in other words. Sometimes, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. You are still enlisting citizen scientists, correct? We, yes, we and, are. And um, the idea here at nativebeewatch.org, if you'd like to sign up for something like that, is to get a better grasp of what's happening to these populations, correct? Correct. Yeah, we're collecting long-term trend data, but also we want to understand uh, what flowers the bees prefer to visit. Ah, and then that that could then be information for gardeners who want 
bee-friendly gardens. Yes, or facilities or landscape. Anyone who designs landscapes, yes, absolutely. If I don't have a garden, and that's true for, you know, a lot of city dwellers, are there ways I can support pollinators? Well, a lot of people may have container gardens uh, in their, in their, on their patios, so that's certainly one option. And they can certainly contact us, and we can see if there's uh, community gardens that they would be interested in monitoring, or in some cases we have a, a, a couple public gardens as well. All right, so there are ways to contribute, even if you don't have necessarily a giant backyard. And no patch of flowers is too small for bees. So, uh, yeah. Small is good, too. This has been just fascinating. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Lisa Mason runs the Native Bee Watch Community Science Program through CSU Extension in Arapahoe County. As I said, she is recruiting volunteers at nativebeewatch.org. So soon, you'll be able to support pollinators with a stop at the DMV. The proposed license plate design will have the native bumblebee, which is the Hunt's bumblebee, on it. That is Joyce Kennedy. She's with the Denver-based People and Pollinators Action Network, which helps protect habitat. And they're behind this proposed specialty plate, which the Colorado legislature has passed with bipartisan support. We have lots of pollinator advocates in the state that want to be able to show their pride for pollinators. The more vehicles that have a pollinator license plate on it, the more awareness we'll create. And the more money they'll raise. The design still has mountains in the background, but features that bumblebee hovering over a flower and the words, protect our pollinators. Hummingbirds and butterflies flit below. The look was the result of a contest. We had almost 50 different designs submitted, some children as well. And we ended up with a Denver-based graphic designer that won it. Uh, And so we will be working with the Department of Motor Vehicles to refine that design. And hopefully that will be the one that shows up on plates, I would predict, next year. All right. We have heard a lot about Colorado's native bees so far, hundreds of different species. Many of them are struggling. Our next guest focuses on honeybees, those workhorses of pollination on farms and orchards. Kimberly Drennan is an architect and teaches environmental design at CU Boulder. She's also an entrepreneur with a startup called Hive Tech Solutions, and they're trying to innovate in a field that in many ways relies on century-old technology. The state has just given Hive Tech Solutions a big old grant. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. And let's begin with some sound. These are... Obviously bees, I'm guessing honeybees, but they're in an unusual setting. Describe the setting for us. That's right, Ryan. These honeybees are um, honeybees that will be going into a smart apiary for the winter. So that's the sound of honeybees getting ready to kind of close up shop for the fall and um, become winter bees. And what does a smart apiary do that a dumb one (laughs) doesn't do? (laughs) Well, a smart apiary is a way that a beekeeper can manage and keep track of the environment that their honeybees are going into over the winter months. So our technology is a way for beekeepers to 
keep tabs on their honeybees while they are in a stable environmental condition. Okay, and tell us about the honeybees' normal experience in winter and how that would change with a smart apiary. Yeah, so conventionally, beekeepers have kept hives outside. So you may be driving down the highway and see these little white boxes sitting outside, and those are honeybees. Um, What happens in a smart apiary and where the climate technology is moving is to create an environment where it's more stable over the winter. Will they be going inside an apiary to uh, survive the winter months? Are they hibernating? Is that the right word? That's kind of the right word. So Uh it's not exactly hibernation like a, a bear. Okay. But they do reduce their metabolic levels and they do kind of cluster together and uh, take a break from reproduction, reduce their mite loads, and get ready for the spring. So they do change in the winter. Reduce their mite loads. That's really important because these are the mites that are kind of plaguing honeybees right now. Exactly. That's just what Lisa was describing is the varroa mite is a parasite that introduces pathogens. It feeds on the fat bodies of the bees and just lowers their immunity overall. It feeds on their fat? Oh, on the fat bodies of, of really, they start out as uh, baby bees. They infect the honeycomb cells, and they emerge with the bees already on them. So I hinted at this in introducing you. The technology, the white boxes that we might pass on the road, that's been the technology for a long time. It has been. That was an 1890s invention that we've still been using to care for our bees. Do those have a name, those boxes? They call them the Langstroth hive because R.L. Langstroth was the inventor and the one who patented that design because it had movable frames on the inside. A beekeeper could go inside and, and inspect the colonies, which is super important. Okay. And have you been able to prove that, I don't know, you've extended the life of honeybees or they're 20% more comfortable or well, what happens, 50% more honey? Yeah, exactly. With, with our technology, we've been able to increase survival rates by upwards of 72% over the winter months, which is the most stressful time for both beekeepers and honeybees. 72%. That's right. Okay. And tell us why that's critical to this industry. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for the conversation earlier where you're describing all of the struggles, both with the honeybee as an organism, and with beekeepers and growers. So what's happening in the industry now is that there's been a steady decline of honeybees available for pollination, those that are responsible for avocados, for almonds, for all of our fruits and berries. So um, what's been happening in the industry is that um, with honeybee losses upwards of 40%, there's a lot of pressure on on beekeepers to supply good, healthy bees, And there's a struggle every January for growers to find enough good honeybees to pollinate our crops. So this is really important. Honeybees are not just creators of honey. They are important pollinators of a a number of different crops that you've mentioned. Absolutely. And that's why their health is so critical, uh, even if you don't put honey in your tea. We're going to pick up this discussion in the next half hour. It is a B-rific version of our show today. Uh, This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Through Colorado Wonders, we are answering just a slew of questions about pollinators so critical to our food supply. And we are currently speaking with architect Kimberly Drennan of Hive Tech Solutions. We've gotten a huge state grant to help protect honeybees. This is CPR News and KRCC. Paula Williams is transgender and author of As a Woman, our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a fresh look at the gender gap. 
She has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. Tickets for June 30th at CPR.org slash turn the page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. We're dedicating much of the program today to pollinators. Many of them are at risk. They're so critical to our food supply. Pollinators uh, certainly are bees, and that includes honeybees and native bees, of which Colorado has 900-some-odd species. But flies are pollinators as well, so are butterflies. Uh, Let's rejoin our conversation now with Kimberly Drennan, Assistant Professor of Environmental Design at CU Boulder, an architect by training and co-founder of Hive Tech Solutions. This is a startup that's gotten a huge state grant to help protect honeybees in particular. Honeybees not only produce honey, they also are important pollinators. And Kimberly, I think it's really important to understand that there's like this nationwide trucking of apiaries to different climate zones. And that's perhaps one thing you can, what, eliminate if you have a smarter apiary? Help us understand this. Yeah. So uh, the transportation issue is, is complex. And because of our monocropping culture, in agriculture, it's going to be difficult to just keep bees in one place. So I don't know that transportation in the near term is going to be completely lost. Mm. But um, by being able to have habitats surrounding uh, different agricultural areas and by having a smart apiary, you can at least stabilize those climate zones as you're caring for your bees. So we're really looking at um, regions around the country that bees could stay in one place for a much longer period of time. Because there is a trucking of bees. There is, yeah. yeah. Describe that for us. Yeah. So um, with our pollinators, they can travel, our honeybees, especially the managed populations, can travel up to 9,000 miles to pollinate crops as they bloom across the country. So if you think about um, the California regions and you go up north to Washington State, they make that journey every year, both on the West Coast and on the East Coast. They make that journey themselves or that's on the back of trucks? A whole group of them travel together on the back of big trucks. Uh-huh. That is a fascinating movement that I was unaware of. Now, uh, with this new smart apiary, I've said that you've gotten, what is it, a half a million dollars? Yeah, from that? we are so grateful to the state of Colorado for supporting what we're doing. Um, we've gotten a $500,000 match from the advanced industries in Colorado. And so we're using that money to accelerate our production of our smart apiaries and get them out to beekeepers so that we can make a real difference on survival rates of managed pollinators. Is that a game changer, that kind of money? It absolutely is. Uh It takes us from a little startup to a a company that can actually supply a manufactured, robust product. How the heck does an architect get involved in apiaries, smart apiaries, Kimberly? That's a great question, and I never imagined that that would be my my future. But I I got involved through CU Boulder. I stumbled across uh, a a research hive compartment, and I got in touch with a researcher who was managing those colonies and performing research, and that's how Hive Tech got started. Dr. Chelsea Cook. You had a conversation about what? The obstacles facing honeybees? We had a conversation about the housing conditions of those honeybees. So I, I looked, I kind of stumbled across and maybe kind of peeked into her apiary, and I saw those wooden boxes that we were talking about earlier, and I thought, as an architect, we can do a lot better. Huh. You looked at that as housing. That was housing. Of course it is housing. It absolutely is. And you thought we could build a, a better version of this. Is it a lot more expensive, though? It depends, because there's a return on your investment when you have 
honeybees that make it through the winter, right? So this technology uh, pays for itself within two years. I mean, increasing the survivability, as you said, by some 70%. Right. You're looking at honeybees who can reproduce and create more honeybees. They can create more honey, and they can uh, pollinate more crops. And so if you're a beekeeper and you're struggling with this 40% to 60% loss rate, this can be a game changer for you. We talked about the mites, but are honeybees also susceptible to climate change? Absolutely. These extended fall periods that we're encountering, um, they and those big temperature swings, right? So that has a big stress on the colony because they, they go out and they look for flowers and they're not there. Okay. And so the idea of a smart apiary is that you can create some better conditions. Okay. For just the last few moments, I'm going to bring Lisa Mason back on from Native Bee Watch Community Science Program through CSU Extension. Hi again, Lisa. Hi, Ryan. I did a Google search and bumblebee is a compound of bumble and bee, bumble meaning to hum, buzz, drone, or move ineptly. So that makes a lot of sense because bumblebees actually do something called buzz pollination. And when they land on specific plants, the vibration that they create releases the pollen from those plants. And so a couple of great examples are tomatoes and peppers need buzz pollination. Oh, it's like vibration pollination. Exactly. Okay, this has been absolutely fascinating. So thanks to you, Lisa Mason from CSU Extension, Kimberly Drennan, Assistant Professor of Environmental Design at CU Boulder and co-founder of Hive Tech Solutions. I appreciate your time. Big thanks as well to Juan Gallegos of Arvada, whose question about bees and butterflies started all this buzz. If you have a question about our state, we'd love to hear it. Reach out through Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. Gas stoves and furnaces are a growing concern for climate scientists. A recent UN report finds humanity basically can't add new gas appliances and still meet global climate change reduction goals. One Colorado neighborhood sees its all-electric homes as a solution, but it's struggling to get home builders on board. Here's CPR climate and environment reporter Sam Brash. Hello. Come on in. Let's just say Norbert Klebel is enthusiastic about his home. When I arrive at his townhouse in the Geos neighborhood in Arvada, there is no small talk. I, I have a quick presentation showing you how we did this. Klebel sits me down in front of a development plan. He doesn't want to stop smiling as he talks, which is a lot. The drawing shows neat rows of homes along a forested creek. It's his dream for a different kind of neighborhood. Which is totally decarbonized which means no fossil fuels, and all the power is on the roof. Klebel points out images of solar panels on the design. He bought the 25-acre site more than a decade ago. Since then, he's built about 30 of the 300 or so planned homes, including his own house. The Austrian-born engineer says every detail is designed to save energy and reduce emissions. That means zero natural gas appliances. The whole development is designed for not gas. Gas should be stopped in new developments. Klebel says that's because natural gas warms the climate and harms indoor air quality. But recent events have complicated his plans for the neighborhood. A divorce forced him to sell the land to another developer, who he says initially agreed to stick with the all-electric plan. Then residents in this quaint little eco-village surrounded by open fields spotted a utility worker. 
and this person told him he was trying to figure out where to bring in gas lines. Clable immediately called the new developer. And so I said, what happened? And he said, I couldn't find a builder who would build without gas. The new developer would not agree to an interview, but he answered questions via email. He says multiple construction companies insisted on gas service. That includes a company called DreamFinders, which ultimately won the project. A company vice president told me it plans to include many green building elements, but wouldn't comment on the plans for natural gas. It left me with a pretty basic question. Putting all this climate stuff aside, gas lines require work and money. So why would a builder insist on them? Pat Hamill runs Oakwood Homes, a major Denver home builder. He told me the reason is pretty straightforward. The preference for gas, cooktops, and and grill is overwhelming. I guarantee you if there's a cook in the family, guess what they want? Hamill says it's gas, and it's not his job to question these sorts of consumer preferences. It's his job to satisfy them. But the residents of the Geos neighborhood take issue with precisely this point. People think it's all sort of sacrifice and you're giving things up, you know, when you talk about climate change, just giving things up and you can't have everything you want. But it's frankly a little bit more like, you know, a a premium product. This is Christian Ogle, and he's one of the residents now lobbying the new builders to stick with the all-electric home plan. To explain why, he takes me to check out his induction stovetop. It's electric, but it uses magnetic resistance to create heat, so no glowing coils. Ogle puts a cup of water on the glass surface. It boils in about a minute. I used to understand people love gas, but honestly, uh, the induction stove is like a million times better, just faster and better in every way. These sorts of electric stoves do cost more money up front, but Ogle says the all-electric appliances help save money in the long run. With the solar panels on the roof, we basically, we pay less than $10 a month. Geos residents have tried to point out these sorts of benefits to the new developer. His responses have focused on personal choice. Gas hookups don't rule out electrical appliances, which could be better. They just give people an option between electricity and gas. This response really bothers Darlong Chang. He moved to Geos after working as an engineer with ExxonMobil. He left the company because he felt like it wasn't ready to move on from fossil fuels. I wanted my daughter to grow up in a community where she could see hope where she could see what it's like and what it would take in order to be able to rise to the challenges of climate change. I spoke with Chang as he fed the Geos herd of communal goats. The animals helped keep down the weeds in a shared open space. He says this is the sort of thing he wanted his daughter to experience in the neighborhood. So was a solid commitment to all electric homes. I I did not sign up for to come here and have the developer go back on this vision and just build the homes out there just like any other homes, and and end up uh, making them all condemned to a fossil fuel future. And he worries if Geos does end up with new gas lines, they won't just accelerate climate change. They'll divide the neighborhood. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Irish miners made their way to Leadville more than a century ago for the silver boom. They were promised a chance at a better life. Instead, they found really hard work, low pay, and brutal winters. Now, a historian is bringing their lives and deaths to light. CPR's Claire Cleveland reports. At just over 10,000 feet elevation, the Evergreen Cemetery is covered in snow for half the year. In the unmarked section, there are sunken plots where the pine boxes that once held bodies have long since deteriorated. Jim Walsh has spent nearly two decades unearthing the stories of the Irish miners in the graveyard. He remembers the first time he was there nearly 20 years ago. 
I couldn't believe that all of these people were just buried without markers. I mean, they, they were given little wooden markers at the time. The names and ages of the people buried there exist in Catholic church records, and about 70% of them were Irish. More than half of them were children younger than 12. The average age, just 23. But little else is known about who these people were. And I remember even saying to myself that day that, that I was going to make this part of my life's work. The people who were buried there, their voices needed to be heard. Walsh has taught at CU Denver for 23 years. He specializes in labor immigration in the Irish diaspora. Back in Denver, he says the unmarked graves are a reflection of the way immigrant labor was seen in America and how the plight for a better life is understood today. The 21st century story of acceptance and hard work and family and community organizing and labor is a 19th century story of acceptance and struggle and hard work and family and faith and, and all of that. The stories are so similar that cannot be ignored. Walsh studied the family lineage of the immigrants in the unmarked section. He's traced family members down and even visited them in places like California. And now he and a group of people who are also moved by this story are working on a memorial that will be built later this year in the middle of the cemetery. This is more a memorial to the conditions the Irish found themselves in here in North America. And that, that story needs to be told now. Living in Leadville was hard in the 1800s. Irish immigrants worked in the silver mines underground. They made low wages, and when they tried to unionize, they were struck down. Those in the unmarked section are there because they couldn't afford to be buried anywhere else. But Leadville was not the start of their hardship. For many, getting to America was a deadly endeavor. Coffin ships, they were called. And they arrived hungry and desperate and unskilled and uneducated and were ostracized and Many fled to places like Leadville because they knew there was a job here for them. Walsh has found connections to the past in unlikely places. At work, he met Paul Burson, whose grandmother was from Leadville. Walsh discovered Burson's great-grandmother and great-aunt, his mother's namesake, are buried in the unmarked section. Burson says it gives him a better understanding of where he comes from and what his family endured. When we try to look at pictures, like, where are the pictures of... My, my grandmother, when she was little, and it's like, they weren't pictures, because they were too poor for pictures. Walsh is also a descendant of Irish immigrants, but he didn't know much about his ancestry when he was younger. We were told, you're Irish, kid, you're Irish, but nothing came after that. Later, he started to wonder about his grandparents and great-grandparents. How did they get to America? What were their lives like? Those questions are what led him to become a historian. He realized along the way that his family wasn't the only one that didn't pass down their immigration stories. He says when the oral tradition fades, books and popular culture take its place. Many of the lies that exist in our high school history textbooks, for example, that fill in those gaps, and those impact our sense of identity, and those impact our sense of who we are, and those impact our sense of our responsibilities to the world today. The loss of oral history and a connection to one's roots fueled the idea for the memorial. A spiral walkway will lead to glass walls carved with the names of the 1,400 people in the unmarked section. This is a reminder to Irish Americans of who we are, where we've come from, the hungry, the desperate, the poor. So to me, it has so many larger connections to other communities and other issues and history. And that, and that offers us our humanity back, maybe.
When it's done later this year, Walsh hopes the memorial will be more than a history lesson. He wants people, even those without Irish roots, to walk away with a fire in their belly not to forget the immigrant struggle. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. And historian Jim Walsh, who we just heard in Claire's story, joins us for some further reflection. Hi, Jim. Hi, it's great to be here. It's nice to see you. I want to pick up on something you said in Claire's piece, that there are lies in history books, untruths about the Irish experience. What what are some of those that stand out to you? Well, I think in terms of Irish and Irish-American history, there's a narrative that that has a focus on climbing the social ladder on success stories. And so Irish-American history tends to highlight stories of those who became politically powerful, those who became economically powerful. Um, it sounds it, like you're making reference perhaps to the Kennedy dynasty there. The Kennedys, but but the Irish, you know, political machine in American history was, was very important. And um, the Irish had a lot of advantages that other groups did not have. They came from, they, they, they were English speakers for the most part. They, um, they could look wasp if they just um, blended in and, and the first generation kept their mouth shut and hid their brogue. So they had a lot of advantages other groups, especially groups today, do not enjoy. So we need to keep that in mind. But the Irish-American narrative is is one of, it's a forward-looking narrative. It's climbing, it's it's achieving, it's, it's making it. And, and today, Irish-Americans are quite comfortable and quite educated. But the Kennedy story and stories like it are really <clears throat> only part of the picture. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, this is what makes the cemetery important, is this is a visual reminder to Irish Americans of, of who we are and, and, and of, of where we, we've come. I, I, I personally have nine great, 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 of my 16 great, great grandparents were famine refugees, nine of them. And, and, I, and I did not know that. I was raised with no knowledge of that. So We're talking about the Irish potato famine, which drove so many immigrants to these shores. That's right, upwards of two million, just in a just in a decade. You are just back from an East Coast bicycle tour. This was part fundraiser for the memorial, um, and I, I understand this was from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to Albany, New York. You rode through historic Irish American spots um, f- for this Irish memorial that'll go up in Leadville. What stands out to you about that trip? Well, I'm I'm. I used a bicycle tour as an idea to raise money. We're, we're continuing to raise money for the memorial. Um, the Irish Network of Colorado has been a great champion as well. We have a great partnership of, of, in the Irish American community here in, in Denver and Colorado. So I had the idea of using a bicycle tour and social media because there's so much um, grassroots support out there. People really want to help and they want to contribute. So I had sort of an online blog, and every day I rode as far as I could and um, stayed, stayed in some little town. And I chose that region because the anthracite coal region of eastern Pennsylvania mm. was heavily, heavily Irish in the 19th century, one of the most Irish parts of the entire, of entire North America. And the Irish were essentially driven out of that region. Um, the, a, a shadowy group known as the Molly Maguires, it was an Irish secret society. Um, we're not sure if it actually existed or not, but... Many Irish miners were accused of being part of that group and accused of some murders of mining superintendents that took place. Hmm. And 20 Irish miners were hanged in and around those coal fields in the 1870s at the same time as the Leadville boom. So Irish miners and their families fled eastern Pennsylvania and 
I believe hundreds of them, and we know this from the records, the records bear this out, made their way to Leadville. And many of them were chased by Pinkertons. They were hunted down by Pinkertons. These for, for were being the kind of hired mercenary cops. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. And so um, there's a strong connection between the eastern Pennsylvania anthracite region and Leadville. And then I rode from the, I rode, so I rode through that region. The hills nearly killed me, Ryan. <laughs> and then I made my way to Interesting Albany. Interesting for, for a guy who uh, is working in Leadville these days. Okay, <laughs> sure, the hills killed you. <laughs> that's true, that's true. But, but those hills are relentless up and down. <laughs> anyway, I ended the tour in Albany because of the Erie Canal. That's another story of Irish labor, <clears throat> is the digging of that canal. Um, one of my ancestors, one of my great-great-grandparents, was part of the digging of that canal. And and the canal, of course, goes from Albany all the way to Buffalo. And that's, a, that's an, a, another aspect of this story of industrial labor, Ryan, is so important to understand the Irish immigrant experience. The Irish left a war of occupation. They left behind a, a, a situation where they were dispossessed of the land. They did not have economic opportunity. There was no educational opportunity. And when they made it to North America, I think they assumed that the struggle was over in some ways, but they found themselves in a war of industrial labor, a war where in Leadville they were making $3 a day. In coal mines, they were dying in massive numbers by accidents. And that war of industrial labor, the victims of that war have not been honored and commemorated, and that's what the cemetery does. And that's what you hope the memorial at the cemetery in Leadville will do. You learned that the Irish miners in Leadville were trying to create a union which was ultimately unsuccessful. The leader, Michael Mooney, was a young man from Dublin, and you traced his lineage. What did you find? It brings me so much joy to, to know that Michael Mooney's name is just being mentioned on Colorado Matters. I've been, I've been studying his life for the, almost two decades. In 1880, the, the miners in Leadville walked out of the mines, and they were 5,000 miners. This was a massive strike. Mm-hmm. At the time, Leadville's population was 35 or 40,000. 5,000 miners left the mines. They, they paraded down Main Street in, in silence in this procession demanding. They were, their demands were, were basic human rights from 3 to $4 a day. They were demanding an eight-hour workday. They were asking for the right to form a union, and they were asking for better safety conditions. None of this was radical. But um, the governor declared martial law. The Colorado National Guard was sent to Leadville with orders to arrest all the striking miners and force them to work in chain gangs building roads. So the strike was essentially crushed militarily. Mooney was the leader. He was 28 years old, Dublin-born. He was a great leader by all accounts, even by his opponents, um, the silver barons even respected him. He kept the men sober, it is said, and nonviolent. So there wasn't a single act of violence during that strike under Mooney's leadership. And so I became enthralled with him. <laughs> I dress up as Mooney and do a, I do a historical monologue from my classes, for oh, museums, for schools. What does that sound like? Could you... oh, I, I... <laughs> oh, no, I'm putting I, you I, on I the start, spot. I start with a simple, by simply holding out three fingers and, um, to the audience, and I say, three Three dollars a day, and that gets their attention. Hmm. And, and, and from there, I can go into the story of why miners would be striking, what it meant to be an immigrant from Ireland at that time. And I've even found Mooney's only living grandchild, who I'm in touch with now, 92-year-old Marilyn Mooney. Where is Marilyn? She's in the Los Angeles area. 
So, uh, so it's been, it's been, so in focusing on, on, on Michael's story, it's allowed me to access the story of the Irish in the West in a larger context. And it's been a joy. What was it like the first time you reached out to her? <laughs> I'll never forget it because I had studied her grandfather for 15 years. I knew everything about him. And it took a while for her, to, for it to sink in, for her to digest, who, is, who are you and why do you know everything about my grandfather? <laughs> it's a little creepy. <laughs> well, she, all, well, here's the thing. All she knew is he was a minor. She didn't know anything about the strike. She didn't know anything about his leadership. She didn't know anything about what he endured. They, for, they chose not to pass that down. I think it was too painful. I think the, the consequences of striking, hmm. the ostracism, he was blacklisted, was too much. They didn't want their children and grandchildren to face consequences to feel like second-class citizens, so they did not pass it down. And that was my experience, too. All of that famine refugee history was not passed down to me either. I'm so glad you shared this with us. You know, I think that Ludlow is a well-told story in Colorado, and the story of Leadville is just less well-known. Uh, I appreciate your helping us change that. Jim Walsh, associate professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. He specializes in labor, immigration, and the Irish diaspora. He's helping put together a memorial in the Evergreen Cemetery. It's in Leadville to Irish miners from the late 1800s who were largely forgotten. And thanks for your time today. And thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Claire Cleveland. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.